So I ask, did the Jews stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So reads the Word of God. Get it? <laughs> That's what I was joking about earlier. And obviously, we need to move into this text to appreciate more fully what it is saying. Every candy store owner has learned with regard to their new employees what every parent already knew from raising their children. Let them have all the candy they want, and within a very short time, they won't want any candy at all. Right? Candy store owners put that one to the test more often than parents do, I have found. But it's a true and reliable statement. All you need to realize that you don't want all the candy you want is to have all the candy you want, right? Up the ante now on both sides of this little game. And you'll have a bit better understanding of what Paul was describing in the final four verses of last week's passage. It's a very similar kind of dynamic. Israel desired more than candy throughout their history, and God responded with more than just letting them have what they wanted. But that's essentially the dynamic that's going on here. That's essentially the scenario that's being described. 
They really desired the spiritual autonomy and self-determination that was afforded them in every expression of idolatry that they welcomed into their community. They wanted the freedom, the spiritual uh, control that they felt like that gave them in their lives. We could spend a long time talking about how that happened and why. Why is it that Israel fell into idolatry, the idolatry of the Canaanites, so soon after entering their land? It's a really interesting question. It has everything to do with successfully living in that land. You have bad crops one year, you're going to call out to somebody that you think can help you with your crops, and you're going to create whatever deity will help you do that. And then if Israel comes in and has bad crops very natural thing to do the same thing their neighbors are doing. That kind of syncretism into idolatry, it just fills Israel's history. But it's all about pursuing what they want and having control over their own destiny and over the course of their lives. They really desired the spiritual autonomy and self-determination that was afforded them in every expression of idolatry that they welcomed into their company even though God had told them through the psalmist that their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Furthermore, the psalmist added, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So what did God do? He blinded Israel's eyes and deafened their ears so that they couldn't see him or hear him. He let them have essentially everything they desired to see how they liked it. But he did more than that just as they did. He hardened them, verse 7 says. He locked them into the longings and implications of their favorite forms of idolatry because that's what their heart desired, fulfilling the vivid descriptions in his word, not just here in Psalm 115, but in so many other places. And they became just like their idols, blind and deaf. That was God's judgment. As David said of his enemies who'd given him poisoned food and sour wine to drink from Psalm 69, Paul quotes Psalm 69 right here in verse 9 describing Israel. Let their table become a snare and a trap, stumbling block and a retribution for them. This is what they want, let them have it. Well, that sets up Paul's next question here in verse 11. Verses 11 through 36, or at least through 32, as I said before, is one thought unit, but we're taking the first half today because there is plenty here to look at, and there will be plenty more to look at next Sunday as God gives us opportunity to do that. We can see this passage that's in front of us in three parts, and you see that in your bulletin. There, that'll be our outline. One last rhetorical Q&A in verses 11 and 12. The flip side of Israel's unbelief, in verses 13 to 16. And really, those first two sections hang together and are almost interwoven with one another. Finally, 
verses 17 to 24, lessons from the olive tree. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's hear what this text has to say to us. Man, in some ways this is going to be like a theology lesson because so much of Scripture is interwoven through this text and it draws on so much of it. So hang in there with us because there's also some really practical instruction, a few imperatives that are worth hearing that will be our takeaway this morning. So let's walk through this and see what the Lord has for us. One last rhetorical Q&A as Paul is moving toward the conclusion of this section, wondering how it is that God has been faithful to Israel when it doesn't look like he's been faithful to Israel. So we're getting very close to the end now, and he's covered a lot of ground, but the rhetorical question that comes up at this point, following on the heels of verses 1 through 10 and the Old Testament quotes that were there in verses 7 through 10, Paul asks, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Paul is asking essentially, is this hardening from God permanent? Is this it? Will they reject Christ and his righteousness forever? Has God intended this as the final cutting off of Israel? That's essentially what that opening question means. And the answer now for the tenth and final time in the book of Romans is by no means. By no means. Not at all. Rather, through their trespass, all that's been described in verses 7 to 10, and really since chapter 2, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Two statements we could spend the rest of the morning on. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. That's Paul just answering in a quick overview the rhetorical question he just asked. Bypassing Israel with the gospel and bringing the nations to salvation through her Messiah is intended to poke at her a bit, to awaken her affections, Israel's make her jealous. Say, wait a minute, that's ours. Yeah, it is. That's the joy of this text. That response, yeah, it is. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, all of the blessings that Israel knew promised through her Messiah coming upon those despised Gentiles to the praise of God's glory and grace? Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, just getting more specific and focused in the if part of this if-then statement, then how much more will their inclusion mean? What? Their inclusion? Now, we pointed out last week in verses 1 through 10 that there was already the insinuation, the ripple, the beginning of a thought that, wait a minute, is Israel going to be restored? And here, Paul makes it not as a question, but as an affirmation. Man, if their if they're falterings spread the gospel throughout the world, 
What's it going to mean when they receive the gospel? And that's a breathtaking statement when it comes to us from the page. What will their inclusion mean? Huh, I don't know. That's a great question. Several important things here that we just want to tick off in a row. First, as, as we said, Paul is insinuating that, his, that this hardening is temporary. We can at least see that. That's the first thing we know. This hardening appears to be temporary. Israel's judgment will be lifted. Her, her jealousy assuaged. She'll recognize Christ, which is just that New Testament Greek word for Messiah. Anointed one. She'll recognize Christ as Savior just as the nations have done. As Doug Moo wrote, Israel's sin is the starting point of a process that will lead back to her blessing. That's what we're seeing in the transition verses out of the introduction and into this long section of Romans 11. Israel's sin is the starting point of a process that will lead back to her blessing, just as it always has for Israel, because they are God's people. Talked a lot of hard news, hard assessments about Israel throughout this letter to Rome, but all of that setting up and setting backdrop for, for what we're seeing here in chapter 11. All of that is true. And yet, so is this. So that's the first thing. Israel's sin is a starting point of a process that will lead back to her blessing. Second, while she's hardened, and this is where we're anticipating section two a bit, part two this morning. While she's hardened, the riches, the the spiritual inheritance promised to her through her Messiah will be dispensed throughout the world to the Gentiles, to the nations, the ultimate manifestation of these riches we see in verse 15, the next section, is life from the dead. But we'll see all of that more as we get there. That's just the second thing to note. Her hardening means the gospel spreads to the nations. Third, though it's her sin that leads to her present failure, And that's the word that's used there, you see, failure. This word means diminution, or I guess the actual proper word is diminution. It means degradation. It means a reduction in size or or importance of something. That's her failure. That's what's being talked about. She's being reduced, and it's some kind of a failure. Sometimes this reduction, this failure, would be of a qualitative sort, which usually means some kind of a defeat or some kind of a loss, like like Israel's rejection of Christ results in her spiritual defeat, her judgment. That's one way to talk about her failure qualitatively. At other times, though, this word is used quantitatively, just raw numbers. There will be fewer of her, and that that's the demonstration of her failure. So that's a thing to note Israel's present failure is is qualitative and quantitative, and yet at this stage, we're not sure which. It's just important to point out that that's what that description is addressing. Third, taken together then with the, uh, actually not third yet. That is third, isn't it? Yeah, 
Just adding to that thought. Down further in the text, that same word appears again, verse 25. Taken together with this word full inclusion, which means full measure or completeness, when you put the failure word together with the full inclusion word that appears again in verse 25, we begin to hear what Paul is saying. Just as with failure, full inclusion, that word, it's a single word behind that, can sometimes refer to quality and sometimes to quantity. If he's speaking qualitatively here, when Paul is talking about full inclusion, what will their full inclusion mean? He's pointing to the opposite of Israel's trespass and defeat. He's referring to the full restoration to Israel of the blessings of the kingdom that she now is missing as a people. But if he's speaking quantitatively when he talks about her full inclusion, he's referring to a full number of Jews which in context would seem to suggest that a much greater number of Jewish believers will be added to the present remnant to fill up the number of Jews destined for salvation in just the way that Paul talks about with Gentiles down in verse 25. We'll keep circling back to that. That is the final factor, though. The final factor that we want to note here is the return of that word in verse 25. It doesn't, it's not full inclusion there. It's translated fullness there in verse 25. It's speaking of the fullness of the Gentiles coming into relationship with Christ. And it seems best to understand this whole passage then in just that way as speaking quantitatively about Israel. The qualitative is there and it's standing in the background and it's not untrue, but it seems as though what's being emphasized here is the numbers, the full inclusion of the Jews that later paves the way to talk about the fullness of the Gentiles. It seems like we're talking qualitatively about Israel. It's saying that at some future time, Israel will come to faith in Christ in great numbers. Paul is saying that the full number of elect Jews will be saved just as the full number of elect Gentiles will be. Thus, Israel's hardening is partial, but salvation will be full for both her and for the nations. God's elect will come to him. He will save them. And somehow, sometime in church history, a great number of Jews are going to come to saving faith in Christ and the remnant will be filled out. And what Paul is talking about here, as we'll see as it progresses, is that that seems to be on the far side of the age of the Gentiles when the gospel is going to the nations. I like what Doug Moo has written on this point. And here I quote, Perhaps we don't need to choose between the qualitative and the quantitative options. While full inclusion, in verse 12, probably has a qualitative emphasis, just the nature of that word generally as it's used, while it probably has a qualitative emphasis, the context and the parallel with verse 25 suggest that this fullness is attained through a numerical process. Continuing to quote Mu, Paul would then be suggesting that the present defeat of Israel, 
in which Israel is numerically reduced to a small remnant will be reversed by the addition of, a, of far greater numbers of true believers. And this will be Israel's destined fullness. End quote. I would add to this that when that this is when the how much more meaning in verse 12 is added to the salvation experience of the Gentiles. How much more will it mean when this happens with Israel, their full inclusion? The how much more added to the salvation of experience of the, new gen, of the Gentiles, the new covenant community really, uh, that includes the nations and the Jewish remnant together in Christ, how much more will it mean for them? What joy will it awaken as we see God fulfill this promise, lift the judicial hardening, and call Israel to salvation by faith in Christ? How much will that mean at the time when we see it? Especially knowing that we've been told about it in the Word of God. That's His plan. He hasn't been unfaithful to His people. He hasn't rejected His people. He's working through a process with them. And that process is going to come to an end. Salvation is going to be poured out to the praise of the glory of God. That's what Paul's talking about. There's the first of our three points and the first two verses of this morning. Okay? That's why we've split this one in half. We'll move a little quicker through these next sections. Before Israel turns, though, before that day when her full inclusion happens, while they're still under God's judgment... The gospel, then, isn't put on the shelf. It's, it's spreading to the nations. And, and Paul is the initiator of that, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he identifies himself here. This is what we're calling the flip side of Israel's unbelief. What's going on during her season of unbelief? What else is happening simultaneous with this? Verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, don't you love that? Paul, why didn't you do that all the way from the beginning? Tell us who you're talking to in each of these passages. It's not always quite this clear, but this one is. Right? And it's profoundly important that he's addressing the Gentiles here. That means seeing a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, not the Israel that's been talked about that is everyone who is a son of Abraham. Not all who are born of Israel are Israel, but those who have faith in Christ. So that means a believing Gentile is more a child of God than an unbelieving Jew, right? So we get back in chapters 3 and 4. But now, Paul's addressing this issue to the Jews, and he's talking to the Gentiles for a moment, creating the distinction that we need to see in this text, and one that so many miss. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry. That's, that's doused down a bit. That's diluted a bit. The word is, is glorify. I glorify my ministry. I lift it up. What he's meaning, essentially, we could take a long time to unpack that. What he's meaning is he works really hard at it. He makes it evident that what he's doing is of vital and vast importance in God's plan. I magnify, I glorify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. So in other words, he just wants them to see him working to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul himself is awakening the jealousy of the Jews 
by the passion with which he's going about spreading the gospel. And he wants the Jews to see this. And thus, perhaps, that some of them might be saved, provoked to jealousy, and from jealousy to repentance. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul has forgotten about the doctrine of election, that he just explained. Now, he's just reaffirming his love for his people, and we saw that tension in Romans 9. Kip did a great job with that topical sort of drilling into Romans 9 when he spoke just a few weeks ago, seeing the tension between the sovereign election of God and the passionate heart of evangelism for the minister. We're seeing that again. Paul is just reaffirming his love for his people and is hoping that God will use his devotion to his calling for the salvation of the Jews, just like he's using it for the salvation of the Gentiles. That it'll backfeed, that it'll actually have some evangelistic impact as the Jews watch him zealously carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And if God will do that, that will be absolutely amazing. That's the whole flavor, the mood of what Paul is talking about here in this section. Verse 15, for if their rejection, and here he's just covering the same ground. We said these first two points are really interwoven with one another. For if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean? Same question we saw back in 12. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Here he gets to a specific answer to that question. It's not just general. Wow, what will it mean? It'll mean life from the dead. What is he saying exactly? Wow, we could spend a long time on this one too, answering that question. What does he mean when he says, what will their full acceptance mean but life from the dead? Clearly you hear in that some nebulous and sort of blurry implications of resurrection, sort of life from the dead. We were spiritually dead in Christ, but, but in Christ we were raised from the dead and we have been reconciled to him and now living the life that he intended. You can hear that in Paul's language, but it's the only time this language, life from the dead, appears in Scripture. So it's hard to drill into it and know exactly particularly what Paul is talking about. Tom Schreiner, though, has summarized it well. I appreciate his commentary on Romans If the sin of Israel has led to the riches of salvation for the Gentiles and to reconciliation of the Gentiles to God, then the effect of the conversion of the Jews will be even more astounding. So Schrander's not trying to tell us how it will be astounding, what will be astounding. He's just saying it will be astounding. If The sin of Israel led to salvation spreading to the nations and the Gentiles being reconciled to God? What in the world might their conversion mean? What's going on in salvation history at this point where the Jews turn to saving faith in Christ in massive numbers? He's saying that will be an astounding time to be alive. It will be an astounding thing to see. What is more astounding, we might ask, than even spiritual life from the dead in this world? What's more astounding than that? With regard to life from the dead, that phrase that's here in verse 15, it would have to be physical resurrection from the dead. 
at the end of this world as we transition into the new heavens and the new earth. That's the astounding reality that seems to be the focus here. Indeed, if, verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, suggesting that the hardness will continue through that entire season, then it seems that their full inclusion, verse 12, their acceptance, verse 15, is pointing to the very end of this age such that the end times resurrection is what comes next. That's the astounding reality. When this happens, the resurrection is at hand. So it's an eschatological promise that Paul is outlining and identifying here in Romans 11. Again, a quote from Doug Moo that I find very helpful. As Israel's trespass and rejection trigger the stage of salvation history in which Paul and we are located, a stage in which God is specially blessing Gentiles, so Israel's fullness, verse 12, their acceptance, verse 15, will trigger the climactic end of salvation history. Now, this quote continues on. There's only that much of it on the screen right now, and that's enough. But let me finish Moo's thought here. Paul insists on the vital continuing significance of Israel and salvation history against tendencies among Gentile Christians to discard Israel from any further role in the plan of God. There's no way to do that. There is a future here that's being prophesied, and it's somehow the culmination of salvation history of life in this world. A stunning reality, an amazing experience, fullness to the praise of God's glory and grace. His salvation poured out on his covenant people. Verse 16 follows as a transition. It's a rich verse coming in two halves. The first one, a little difficult to understand. The second, helping out a bit. It introduces a metaphor, verse 16 does, that draws on Numbers 15. The first fruits of the dough. First fruits were required according to the law in Israel, even first fruits of the dough, the bread. Holy first fruits ensure that the whole lump is clean. That makes sense. You're not going to take the first fruits and offer it to God if it is unclean somehow. So the first fruits indicate the cleanness of the whole. Arguing from the lesser to the greater, something that Paul is doing throughout this section. The meaning of this, even though we can understand the metaphor, it makes sense to us, the meaning of it, why Paul is using it here, is not immediately clear. So the meaning is unclear on its own, but the second half of the verse seems to be parallel to the first, and the meaning there is much clearer because he makes it clearer. So verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The very next verses, 17 and 18, confirm that the branches are believing Jews. Jews still anchored in to life 
in the trunk of the olive tree that has the solid root to it. But it's not clear until verse 28, which isn't even in our text for this morning, but something we have to dip into and appreciate. It's not clear until verse 28 that Paul is using the root here to identify the patriarchs. Wow, is there a lot of discussion on who the root points to. Surely the root has to point to Christ, right? He is the, the source of life to the covenant community, old and new. Or it could refer to the remnant because they're the ones that are the recipients and the ones through whom the message spreads. Yeah. There are several different ideas about who this means, but it appears from verse 28 that Paul has identified who he's talking about. He's talking about the patriarchs. Israel is beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That's the root of this olive tree, this distinctively Jewish plant that represents the people of God. So even though they're currently under God's judgment for the sake of salvation of the Gentiles, what he's saying here is that God has not rejected them for the sake of their forefathers, whom we might identify as the original company of the elect. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As the root, the original called ones were holy. The branches are holy as well. Those who are the true children of Abraham are part of the covenant community. Seems to be what Paul is saying here. And that moves us now into section 3 of our outline here. That was all sort of on-ramp through verses 16 through 13 through 16. So the second half of verse 16 then gives us the on-ramp into the familiar and profoundly important metaphor of the olive tree here in verses 17 to 24. The imagery itself of the olive tree really isn't that hard to understand. The olive tree spotlights, as we just said, the Jewish origin and nature of the covenant people of God and of the gospel. The root is, again, we believe, the patriarchs in verse 28. But even as I say that, we have to remember that metaphors like this in Scripture are not analogies that you, you have to make every single thing apply to something particular and has to stay that way. It's an image. Paul is putting an image in our minds. Having done the work that we did in Revelation, it's helpful here. Let it stay blurry around the edges. But this is essentially what's being talked about. The root drawing our attention to the patriarchs. The branches broken off are those born into the covenant family who did not pursue the righteousness of God by faith. They're broken off because they're not people of faith. And it's the vast majority of Israel, the remnant, are the ones that are still in the olive tree in this picture. The wild olive shoot refers to the Gentiles who were grafted in among the other branches as though they become like natural branches. Through saving belief in Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah. That's how it happens. But we labeled this section of our outline lessons from the olive tree because it's not really all that profitable just to go verse by verse and phrase by phrase and put this together. This is a picture, and we just need to draw from it the lessons that we can hear. So let's go that direction, and let me give you three, and it'll take us a few minutes on each one of them. 
but um, I think it's helpful in order to understand what Paul is doing here or the important things that we're supposed to take from it. Okay? So let's spotlight three, what I believe are profoundly important, lessons from the olive tree. First, there are not two peoples of God. There is one. There are not two peoples of God. There is one. Israel, though, is not synonymous with the church. And the church neither replaces nor displaces Israel. It's not like that. It's not how it works. But the two peoples of God do work together into one. There's salvation in one name, Jesus. And the only way to be reconciled to God, old or new covenant, is either looking forward to Israel's coming Messiah and putting your trust in that promise or looking back to Israel's Messiah arrived and to the saving work that he did. There is one way to be reconciled to God and it makes us into one people of God. So the church doesn't replace or displace Israel and Israel is not synonymous with the church. But the promises God made to Israel were always intended to be kept. Let's talk about Israel first. We're always intended to be kept only with the remnant. Unbelieving Israel is no better off than the nations. That's the point Paul made back in chapters 2 and 3. Unbelieving Israel is no better off than the nations. You enter into the fullness of God's promises by trusting in his word and walking according to the covenant under the old covenant, expectant of the coming Messiah. We walk by faith in that Messiah under the new covenant. The promises of God made to Israel were always intended to be kept only with the remnant, believing Israel who walked by faith according to the covenant. That's who the remnant are. And God warned them about this clearly and distinctly You walk in disobedience, you forsake the covenant, you inherit the covenant curses, not the covenant blessings. God warned them of this clearly and distinctly again and again in every part of their scriptures, law, prophets, writings. The church is one new entity made up of true believers in Jesus Israel's Messiah, whether Jews or Gentiles. Ephesians 2 makes that clear right on the heels of the clearest, concise statement of the gospel and its implications. In the first half of Ephesians 2, the second half talks about the fact that the church is one new man made out of the two, Jew and Gentile, together in a new entity which is also described there as that passage comes to a conclusion as the temple in which God dwells by his spirit. So the church is one new entity made up of true believers in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, whether Jews or Gentiles, and they will inherit the promised blessings of God together, just as he has always intended. Evidenced most clearly by his promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. It was always intended to be so. Because of all this, 
it's actually fine to call the church the new Israel, precisely because we're not mixing them up. We're not saying that they're synonymous. We're not saying that the one displaces or replaces the other. We're just recognizing, in fact, that there really is still an old Israel, an, an ethnic Israel, a Jewish Israel, and among those, the remnant. However many among them have actually trusted in their promised Messiah and in so doing are walking in the salvation of God. Because all of this is true, it's fine to call the church the new Israel because the Gentiles don't become Jews to be saved. The remaining Gentiles, think of Paul's argument in Galatians. Wes did a great job with that, helping us understand that just a couple of weeks ago. Think of the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be saved. And Jews don't have to become Gentiles in order to be saved. Both Jews and Gentiles just need to trust in Christ as Savior. And as they are, they're grafted into the olive tree. Natural branches, wild branches, together in one. You can't get clearer than that. How we got unclear on this is a mystery to me. But that's the image Paul is using here in Romans 11. One body that includes Jew and Gentile together, just like Ephesians 2 says. The church is called by Peter in 1 Peter 2, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, using the language of Old Testament Israel to describe the new covenant community, not saying that they're one and the same, using that language because one new man is made out of the two, and this was the language that was always used to describe the faithful remnant. He went on to call them ones on whom God has poured out his mercy. You have received mercy. Verse 10, 1 Peter 2.10. And we know from right here in chapter 9 that God has mercy on whomever he wills. The new covenants promised through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. The new covenant promised through these two prophets is describing the salvation of all who believe. We go to those passages and we read about our own salvation, the Spirit of God taking root in our hearts, giving us a heart of flesh, reconciling us to God, His Spirit taking up residence within us. All new covenant language experienced by Jew and Gentile together. Whoever embraces Israel's promised Messiah, Jesus. So the new covenant promised through Ezekiel and Jeremiah is describing the salvation of all who believe from Israel and from every other nation. It's the eternal inheritance of Jew and Gentile together in Christ. Arrogance toward the Jews, verse 18. This is lesson two. Arrogance toward the Jews, arrogance toward Israel is good evidence that saving belief is not present in one's heart. That transition was a little too easy. The first, the first lesson, there are not two peoples of God, there is one. Now, the second, arrogance toward Israel 
is good evidence that saving belief is not present in one's heart. Those who have received forgiveness are tender toward others. It's just how it works. When you've come to an understanding of your sin and received God's forgiveness and cleansing from your sin, your understanding of all those others that wrestle with sin, that separates them from God. It's just part of the work that's done in our hearts as we receive the gospel. Those who have received forgiveness react in gospel ways to gospel needs. Jesus taught this again and again. Right on the heels of the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount, but other times during his teaching, that if you're forgiven much, you love much. If you're forgiven little, you love little. The problem is, no one who's forgiven little is reconciled to God. That's the way the imagery is talked about from Jesus. So he taught this very point. Arrogance toward Israel is good evidence that saving belief is not present in one's heart. We also learn from Jesus what Paul has explained again here in this letter to Romans, most clearly spotlighted in chapter 8, that we don't lose our standing with God after we've received it by faith. Even though we continue on to live as sinners, Romans 7. And yet, Paul writes here in this passage, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Is he contradicting the truth that he taught in Romans 8? No, I don't think so. What does Paul mean here when he says, God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you? Why would you say it has to be similar to what Jesus taught at the end of his Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me. There are those who get close enough to the gospel to really appreciate what it's all about, but don't really trust in Christ as Savior, aren't really forgiven much and know the joy and cleansing of that forgiveness. So when the fruit of that cleansing is not demonstrated through our lives, it's something to pay attention to. That's the warning Jesus is giving here. I think that's the same warning that Paul is giving toward those that would have a disposition of superiority toward the Jews as though they failed but will succeed. The gospel changes our hearts to be like God's heart. And when a gospel-changed, Holy Spirit-inhabited heart senses arrogance creeping in, it forsakes it in repentance and faith. 
there's the point to take away here. That heart doesn't express itself tearing down others, but it expresses itself in prayer and gospel witness and in self-denying love. Paul wrote here in verse 22, setting up actually lesson three, note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, who aren't trusting in him, aren't walking according to covenant, haven't received his promised Messiah as sin-bearing Savior and Lord. Note then this kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off, Paul says, just like unbelieving Israel. And we will say, true as this is, Lesson three, then, is important here. Repentance and faith are still available to Israel and to everyone else. Repentance and faith are still available to Israel. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And we'll see as this text progresses into next week's portion that he intends to do just that to display with all possible clarity the vast depth of the riches of the wisdom of his knowledge and his entirely unsearchable and incomprehensible ways. He will show that. We can be reconciled to God. Israel can be reconciled to God. That's an important thing to remember as a lesson from the olive tree. And having done that, I have to pose us a question now. What should be our takeaway today? What should be our takeaway from this text? Is it just a theology lesson? Or do we have something here that we can listen to and respond to by faith? (coughs) Excuse me. So I would say, how about we just listen to the commands that are in the text? I mentioned that earlier. How about we just listen to the commands that are in the text? There are three imperatives here. And they give us something that we can do in response to this um, lesson from Romans 11. And by do, please understand that I don't mean do for God. What I mean by do is do by faith. In repentance and faith, God enable my obedience to you, spirit-empowered obedience to look like this. Number one, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. There's one of the imperatives. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. All who savingly believe in Jesus are children of Abraham. We are one family together with all who savingly believe, Jew and Gentile alike. We need to hold on to that and not let different ideas about how this passage works turns us into critic, turn us into critics of either one another or of the old covenant people of God. Hear that charge. Do not be arrogant. The second is very much like it. Verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. There's Paul reminding the Gentiles of how it actually works. So, he says, do not become proud, but fear. Walk in the fear of God. Walk in the humility of reverence before God 
trusting that it is only in him that we can be reconciled to him and when we are our character matches his character not perfectly we still struggle Romans 7 but the work of God is being done in our hearts let me just read verses 21 and 22 and you can hear this again in its context they were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand firm through faith so do not become proud but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you a fair and important warning to hear that doesn't cause anxiety and stress. It just presses us yet again into the arms of Jesus to trust and to savingly believe. Our only hope is in you. When we are saying that to Jesus, we're in the place that we need to be. So how does this work? How do we do it? That leads to lesson three. At the end of verse 22, but we'll read the whole of it, because the imperative is actually open. Note, then, the kindness and severity of God. There's the command. But as he goes on, there's actually some response that we can do other than just making note. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you what? Continue in his kindness. And how do you continue in his kindness? You do so by walking in repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus. You continue in his kindness by continuing in him. So many parallels in this passage to John 15 and the vine. Life is in the vine. Life is in the olive tree. Remaining in him, continuing in his kindness, walking by repentance and faith is, is abiding in Christ. That's the calling of every believer. Jew and Gentile alike. So what pattern should our obedience take as we hear this passage? Paul gives that to us, tucked in along the way through the commands that he's given to the discerning ear as he's instructing them on this vastly important point. Now, as we go into the final stage of Romans 11 next week, that's a glorious text of Scripture. Just like this one is, this olive tree image is so vivid and helpful in establishing a clear and understandable ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, the, the redeemed new covenant people of God. So helpful. So let's ask that the Lord would enable us to live in honor of this text in this week ahead and let's pray now that as we remember the saving work of Jesus we will see the vast and multifaceted manifestation of God's wisdom that it expresses through that which we now remember together pray with me and as we pray musicians and communion servers please join me at the front Heavenly Father, we have waded in deep waters today. We have walked through deep weeds of theology and biblical interpretation and understanding. And yet, Father, we have been given very clear and simple directions in what to do with it. How to conceive well of one another in the church, especially ac across the Jew and Gentile divide. But Father, we can see in that lessons on how to live with other kinds of divides that happen in the church as well. Ethnically, 
racially, age-wise, gender-wise, tensions within the body of Christ that do not honor you. Father, this is the great and overarching division that needs to be bridged in Christ. And we thank you for a passage like this one and like Ephesians 2 that help us do that. But Father, help us learn more than just good theology and relationship between Jew and Gentile. Help us to learn what it looks like to live in Christian ways in a world that is divided on more fronts than we can count. Fill us with this very love of Christ. Deliver us from the temptation toward arrogance and pride. and Help us to continue in your kindness as ones who believe and walk in the gospel and then who proclaim it to help others know that same kindness. Oh, Father, now as we remember, may we remember with hearts filled with love for you and for Jesus who has reconciled us to you. In his name we pray.